if I've gone caving, like proper caving, like when it's completely dark, and uh, and you you get into this cavern and you've got a torch and you shine the sort of the torch around and it looks like you've reached the end of the cave complex. But as you poke into the shadows and, and you shine your torch down this little uh, dark corner, you discover that there's actually another passageway and you crawl through that passageway and and it opens up into a whole new complex. The cross is like that. Reflection on the Christian teaching, the theology of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. It is an endless treasure. You know, it reminds me of that line, uh, when, a, when a man is tired of London, he is tired of life. Have you ever heard that? <laughs> the English people in the room have. Um, uh, Samuel Johnson, an 18th century English poet, he says, For there is in London all that life can afford. I was in London one day and a mate woke up one morning and looked at me and said, oh, I'm tired of life. <laughs> we were ready to go home. Whether, whether that is true of London or not, I will say if you're tired of the cross, you're either not paying close enough attention or you've been deprived of good Bible teaching. There is always more to explore. The message of the cross is endless in its depth and its reach. There is always more to explore about what the cross of Christ accomplished and there's always more to consider about the implications of the the parts of life that the message of the cross will transform. So what a privilege it is. We've got five weeks, which is barely enough to scratch the surface of the work and accomplishment and implications of the cross of Christ. Last week... Uh, Steve Sonneman began our series uh, by thinking about how Jesus died in our place and we thought about that great exchange. What wonderful news. Uh, Over the next four weeks, we'll think about how uh, the cross, through the cross, Jesus forgives our sins, sets us free and gives us an example for life. Today, our topic is Jesus defeats our enemies. And I have three simple points. They are this. First point is Jesus defeats our enemies. The second point is this Jesus defeats our enemies. And the third point is therefore we can rejoice. Therefore we can rejoice. Thinking about Jesus defeating our enemies, essentially this is a reflection on power. And reflecting on power has become a significant topic in our community. Uh, at large and and particularly in the church as we've come to grips and and reflected on the exercise of power. Who has power? How is power to be used well? And more to the point, how is power misused? Particularly in the church. And the message of the cross is in part a message of power. We use that phrase, the power of the cross. We sing about the power of the cross. Do you see the deep irony here? Because, of course, the Roman Empire talked about the power of the cross. The cross was a powerful instrument of state control. It was not just a a, a way of executing people. There are more efficient ways of executing people. The cross was a powerful tool of Shame and humiliation. This is how you say that the things that this person has been accused of and found guilty of, 
this is not to be repeated because look what happens. Shamed, humiliated and publicly and a powerful deterrent it was. And yet Christians also speak of the power of the cross but exactly opposite to the way that the Roman authorities thought about the power of the crucifixion of Jesus. Because, well, we see, as Paul says here in Colossians 2 verse 15, that the cross is the place of triumph. The cross is the place of triumph. 2.15 says, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. Here is the battle imagery that Paul is drawing on here. When, when the, the Roman armies would defeat uh, 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 some other you know, army in a territory, they would then lead that army in a, a public parade and, and the, the generals and the kings would be there chained, uh, being marched through the city and made a public spectacle of, having been disarmed, having been triumphed over, And Paul draws on that imagery to say this is what Jesus does for his people, for all of us. That's what we're reflecting on this morning. I want to look a little bit more closely at this reading from Colossians chapter 2 and and see why does Paul talk about the power of the cross in this way, in this book. If you have uh, uh, Colossians 2 open in the Bibles there, look just a a little bit ahead of our passage at the beginning of the paragraph in verse 6. Paul is wanting the Colossians to stick at Christian faith. Stick at Christian faith and life. He says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Jesus is not just for Christmas, but for all of your life. Stick at it. And in order to stick at it, he wants to show them the, the fullness of life in Christ that we have as Christian people. And so he speaks about the achievement of the cross. Let's pick it up from verse 13. He says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, here are two things that stand against the Colossian church. Firstly, they weren't Jews. This is the uncircumcision of their flesh. That's what that means. They're not Jews. And you might think, well, that's easily fixed. Um, easily is relative. Um, but there's more, to the, more of a problem here. We're not just talking about external religious uh, rituals. They were dead in sin. Hear the words? Dead in sin. They weren't unconscious in sin. They weren't partially incapacitated in sin. A little bit under the weather in sin. Dead in sin unresponsive, unable to revive themselves. And this stands against them and stands against their relationship with God and their eternal being. But, but verse 13 continues, God made you alive with Christ. And here Paul mentions two things that Christ has done for them. The first is there in verses 13 to 14. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge 
of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. Now next week we'll look more carefully at the message of Jesus forgiving our sins but I'm struck here by the imagery of opposition and condemnation. This charge of legal indebtedness. We got a charge of legal indebtedness this week. Somebody in our family owes the government $227 for driving 56 kilometres an hour down Park Street where it's a 50 kilometre zone. You know, Paul's imagery is this idea that we have, all of us as human beings, have a charge of legal indebtedness against us. But not just a piece of paper. There's a sense that Paul is here talking about a, a person who is, who is standing against us and is condemning us. That charge, that enemy who is against us. And Jesus takes it away. Jesus takes it away by the cross because Jesus defeats our enemies. That's the first enemy here in Colossians 2. The second is there in verse 15 that I've mentioned already. Jesus has disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them. It's a great, it's a great image of, uh, of conquest and we could just sit in the victory of Jesus and celebrate that but we pause and ask a little bit more, what are these powers and authorities? What are the powers and authorities that have been publicly shamed and have been defeated? It's not immediately clear there in verse 15, but I think we get some clues in the following verses. As we look on at what Paul says to the Colossians, describes their experience, here we see that the Colossians are being judged and condemned by powers and authorities in their lives and that in three ways. Verse 16 says they're being judged on the basis of what they must do. There are people who are giving them these instructions. This is what you have to do. If you want to be a good Christian, then make sure you keep the food laws. Make sure you keep the religious festivals. Make sure you observe the Sabbath day of rest. Do these things. We're exercising our power over you and making sure that you live the way that we want you to live, being judged on the basis of what you must do. Verse 18 then seems, secondly, that they seem to be judged on the basis of how they worship. It's a tricky phrase here, um, uh, the worship of angels. You're being judged... Uh, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Now, that could mean a couple of things. It could mean that there are some people who are saying, you need to worship angels. If you're going to be a good Christian, then worship Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit and worship the angels as well, which is possible, but it would be very weird um, uh, for Christians to do. But, I mean, Christians do weird things. Don't, don't get me wrong. <laughs> don't get me started. But... <laughs> But it could also mean worshipping like the angels. Worshipping the ways that angels worship. Yeah? And it seems that when you see the next verse, the next verse is connected with their visions. 
Such a person goes into great detail about what they have seen. So I think an explanation of what's going on here is that people are saying, we are more spiritual than you. We've had these spiritual experiences. And, you know, it's not about me because it's all about God. Um, So there's the false humility. But this is how you should worship because this is how the angels worship. Because we've seen the angels and this is how they do it. Hands up, hands down, who, who really knows? Okay? But there's something, the way that angels worship, that's how you need to do it. But do you see the power that's being exercised here? We have power because of the visions, the spiritual experiences that I've had and this is how you need to live as well. And the Colossians are being disqualified on the basis of this and Paul says, no, don't listen to them. Judged on the basis of what you must do. Judged on the basis of how you should worship. Thirdly, judged on the basis of the rules about what you cannot do. Don't handle certain things. Verse 21 to 22. Don't taste or eat certain things. Don't touch certain things. And certain things, probably certain people and touching, probably relating to having sex. These rules, the things that you shouldn't do. And you see, verse 22, these rules are all based on merely human commands and teachings. So they're not from God. They're just the things that other human beings decide that they're going to impose upon others. The ways that they're going to exercise their power, their authority over others. Human commands, human teachings. But of course, before we get too dismissive of these, realise that they're actually quite impressive. Think of people who are very disciplined. People who are passionate worshippers. People who live uh, simple lives. They can be really impressive lives. Like if you want to look like you've got it together, (laughs) then follow these rules. Find some religious rituals and really commit to them in a way that nobody else does. And and find a way of worship that just is sort of humble but, but impressive. And just put yourself out there as a model for other people to follow. And be very strict uh, with the sort of uh, uh, rigid simplicity that you live in your life. And you'll be an impressive person. And people will probably flock to you. See what Paul says? Such regulations have an appearance of wisdom. But of course it's only an appearance. Because these lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Yeah, they appear wise. They look impressive. But they don't change our hearts. So, see what Paul is saying. Paul's message to the Colossians. Two things. Jesus defeats our enemies, verses 13 to 15. And verses 16 to 23, Jesus defeats our enemies. Not you (laughs) and not other people, but Jesus. How How do we defeat sensual indulgence? How do we defeat those desires of the heart that lead us away and astray? It's by Jesus. Jesus defeats our enemies. Only the death of Jesus brings that great exchange. Religious rituals have no power. 
pecking orders based on religious experience and expressions of worship have no power. Rules about what is spiritual have no power and that, my friends, brothers and sisters, is a message of freedom. Jesus defeats our enemies so we are free. The powers and authorities say you must and we say in Christ, no. Now, of course, I'm not talking about the authorities that determine how fast you can drive along Park Street. (laughs) But the authorities that say this is what you need to do in order to be connected with God, this is what you need to do in order to be fulfilled, this is what you need to do to be a good Christian. Jesus is the one who gives us the answer to all those questions. And Jesus is the one who has done all that is needed that we might be rescued, delivered, set free. This is both a message of gift and joy as well as a rebuke and a challenge. Yes, live the spiritual life. In Christ you are free, but realise also if Jesus defeats our enemies, that means you're not the saviour, not of yourself and not of others. So stop pretending like you're the solution to everybody's problems, if that's you. If you're misusing your power, if you're setting yourself up as the guru, then realise this message of the gospel. Jesus defeats our enemies. Here is a message of freedom. Freedom for others. Freedom from you. But notice also freedom for you, a freedom for us, each of us. We might be just relieved of that burden of responsibility. It's not about us. Free, free from having to prove ourselves, free from having to secure my own significance, free from all who oppose us. That's the message of Colossians 2. And that message is echoed throughout the Bible. The Lord God, supremely in the Lord Jesus Christ, defeats our enemies. It gives us a great contact point for when we're reading the Old Testament. Those passages, those stories about conquest and the defeat of enemies seem so removed from our sort of geopolitical experience. But a way of connecting with this message, Jesus defeats our enemies. It connects us with Ephesians chapter 6 and a passage about the armour of God given that we might clothe ourselves in Christ, that we might take our stand against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This passage connects with Romans chapter 8 verse 2. We have been set free from the law of sin and death. This passage connects with 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. Our Saviour Christ Jesus has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. Death is the great enemy. And I know that death is on many of our, our minds. 
We grieve with Frances. Her sister died in a car crash on Monday, Mike told us of in the news sheet this week. Uh, Some of you may well know Anthea McCall, a, a beloved colleague of ours here at Ridley College. Her office was just below mine and uh, I would see her every morning. And uh, uh, it was a week and a bit ago that she lost a five-year battle with cancer and we said uh, goodbye on Friday. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15:25, the last enemy to be destroyed is death, the great enemy. You know, I was talking to John about Christian funerals on, uh, on Friday morning and that, that weird mix of sort of joy and grief. Because it is wonderful, isn't it? Those who have died in Christ are blessed. They rest from their labours. A friend of mine says whenever he leads a funeral, he says he's kind of envious. But of course there is grief upon grief. But Jesus defeats our enemies. Jesus has defeated our great enemy. Therefore, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we do not grieve like the rest who have no hope. In the face of death, we are all undone. But as Hebrews 2 verse 14 says, by his death, Jesus broke the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and freed those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Jesus defeats our great enemy. Jesus defeats our great enemy. And how? Well, by the cross. Colossians 2.14 Jesus cancelled the charge of guilt by nailing it to the cross. Verse 15, Jesus disarmed the public and publicly shamed the powers and authorities by the cross. And again, of course, we are in deep irony here. Our charge of guilt is cancelled by a man suffering the penalty for guilt. The powers are disarmed by a man who is overpowered in death. The authorities are shamed by a man being publicly shamed. Why is it the cross that accomplishes all these things? Well, there's mystery in that. As C.S. Lewis says in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, there is deep magic here. And of course, there's an answer. Of course, there's an answer. Theologians have spent lots of time thinking about this. There are other teachings about the cross like the Great Exchange and and other details of the accomplishment of the cross and we'll look at that over these coming weeks. And not only that, but of course the cross doesn't stand alone but the cross stands as part of God's covenant and the incarnation of Christ and his life and ministry, his resurrection, his ascension, his session, his return and the promise of the creation to come. All of that comes together in the cross. But let's leave the question of how 
for another day. And instead, let's let the Spirit of God speak to the eyes of our heart, to our imaginations. Because what we've been given today is a metaphor. Jesus, the victorious one. Jesus who defeats our enemies. Our rational mind asks, how? But what we're being offered is a new way of seeing ourselves and this world. Our rational mind might even respond with, has he? Has he really defeated our enemies? Do you still feel condemned? Do you still live in fear? Are we still undone by death? Well, as with all of this good news, what we're being offered is a gift. And the invitation that God makes is that we take up that gift in faith. So would we see the death of Jesus on the cross as the place of victory? Would we see our lives in Christ, united with Christ in his suffering? And so would we confront our enemies, the powers and authorities that stand against us, the things that hold us in fear, would we confront them in Christ and know that we are free? And so in full assurance of faith and confident of what we hope for and assured about what we don't yet say, would we sing Psalm 124? Or really any of the Psalms of praise. But Psalm 124 was where I was up to this week. And I came upon it and I was struck again by, well, it's delight. (laughs) The sheer delight in being delivered. My colleague Jill Firth who teaches the Psalms here, she said there's not surprise. Nobody's surprised that God rescues people in the Old Testament because that's what God does. God rescues his people, so of course. But there is delight. (laughs) Relief. If the Lord hadn't been on our side when people attacked us, then we would have been swallowed alive. But look, we've escaped. And this is not just for me to celebrate, but for all of us. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, let all Israel say this together. We have been rescued. We have been delivered. And if the Lord had not defeated our enemies, if the Lord had not defeated our enemies, then we'd be lost. But as it is in Christ, we are free. And so we rejoice. Verse 8 is a very famous verse in Protestant church history because it was the call to worship at the very beginning of John Calvin's uh, uh, service liturgy. Published in 1542, used in Geneva uh, and then Lausanne and then throughout the Protestant Reformed uh, world in Europe. He would begin the service and the, the minister would say, Our help is in the name of the Lord. I mean, he'd say it in French, but... Our help is in the name of the Lord. And the people would respond, the maker of heaven and earth. That's who we meet with. Our help indeed is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Our help is in the name of the Lord who has disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them by the cross of Christ. Jesus defeats our enemies. 
So we are free and we rejoice. Amen.